This is Kim Sinclair Harvey, and you are listening to episode 7 of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. On this week's episode, we'll be going over one of my book reports from my Indigenous Methodologies class that goes over Brianna Lawrence's book. Also, we'll be doing a social media roundup where I'll talk a little bit about Taiko Waititi, about some of my writing methods, and also the election. So let's get to it. So for one of our um, midterm assignments in my Lenonit Graduate Studies 500 course, uh, which is my Indigenous Methodology uh, class, we were asked to do a book report on Bonita Lawrence's Real Indians and Others, Mixed Blood Urban Native Peoples and Indigenous Nationhood, um, asking central questions around belonging, identity, and the impacts of settler colonialism and imperial hegemony has had on Indigenous peoples to self-determine what our identities um, are and be the authoritarians of what that means. So I'm going to read this to you and I'll post it to my blog so you'll have a literary version of it on there as well. Uh, Let's get to it. In Bonita Lawrence's Real Indians and Others, Mixed Blood Urban Native Peoples and Indigenous Nationhood, she examines how the Canadian state historically and presently implores tactics of genocide via state legislation to displace Indigenous peoples from our land, culture, and ultimately selves. Lawrence uses her own stories, academic research, and the lived experiences of 30-day Toronto urban Indigenous residents to explore the varied and complex impacts Canadian state methods of genocide have had on Indigenous peoples and our ability to self-locate. Lawrence speaks to the imperial administrative enfranchisement tactic to, quote, eradicate the Indian, which has resulted in an indigenous modernity complex that positions traditionalists to be in friction with urban traditionalists. Lawrence speaks to the divide and conquer tactic the state implores with specific attention to mixed blood indigenous peoples impacted by colonist policies. For centuries, agents of the state have attempted to primordialize Indigenous peoples, and Lawrence analyzes this imperial assertion to try and control Indigenous identity and manage it in an inflexible, historicized existence. This has further complicated Indigenous peoples' ability to self-determine our identities, sovereign from state influence and administration. Centuries of colonial state oppression against Indigenous ontologies has forced many of our Indigenous nations to evolve or adopt imperial patriarchal capitalism. Lawrence offers that we cannot look at state regulation of Native identity without looking at how gendered the attacks have been. She gives attention to the state's grossest attempt to control and dominate Indigenous women with their ultimate desire to, quote, bleed off Indigenous peoples. Lawrence addresses the unjust persecution persecution of Indigenous women under Canada's identity legislation, which includes the Indian Act and Bill C-31. These legislative prescriptions support the state's desire to surveil and control the status of Indigenous women. The Canadian state functions under patriarchal binary divisions that feed their acquisitiveness to be the authoritarians of Indigenous identity. We know Indigenous identity is an alive and ever-shifting process, and our multi-perspective pedagogy has been persecuted by colonists to indoctrinate Indigenous peoples into a colonial mindset. 
the Canadian state desires desires to be the managers and judges of Indigenous peoples under duplicitous divisions. Loyal or disloyal, status and non-status, urban or rural, male or female, moral or immoral, Indian or white, and is an attack on our holistic encircling Indigenous worldviews. The colonial dualistic worldview prohibits our emancipation and self-determination of identity because of its bipartite nature. The divide-and-conquer tactic impacts Indigenous people's ability to nourish one another in communion because when we extract or remove imperial oppressive paradigms, decolonize and then re-traditionalize, Indigenous citizens, particularly urban Native peoples, often find themselves isolated and questioning their transformations. I myself have experienced this, and a number of Lawrence's participants speak to the lateral violence that can occur in Indian country regarding displacement, charges of assimilation, being a quote real Indian, and a reticence to evolve Indigenous culture and thus identity. The immersion of Indigenous peoples into a white supremacist society makes the state's warfare approach of division more manageable. This engulfment warfare tactic is applied to nations and communities to remove Indigenous leadership from our land stewardship roles, which makes the state's multi-layered land embezzlement transgressions feasible. We see the state's appetite to divide and manage Indigenous peoples with their perpetual attempts to carve, isolate, categorize, and disunite indigeneity, which includes the metricization of identity by blood quantum. If we situate the classification of Indigenous identity in direct relationship to the land, we see and Lawrence connects the whites' desire to, quote, own all nations' territories, and blood quantum supports this pillaging. In combination with, quote, the bleeding off tactic by the attempted control of indigenous women, blood quantum becomes the finishing mechanism to support the state's jurisdiction on being the decision makers around groups, quote, no longer being Indians. Thus, any indigenous right to live on a land as stewards becomes, quote, ineligible, and thus blood quantum has an isolated metric, as an isolated metric, becomes weaponized by the state to own land to which indigenous peoples have been stewards of from time immemorial. What the state did not predict with blood quantum was that it positioned indigenous peoples to be afforded the space to continue our intergenerational investigations and applications into one of our most powerful characteristics, blood memory. Lawrence writes, In a country where a powerful body of white politicians and scholars have for years maintained a monopoly on defining Indianness and where Native peoples do not control the discourse that controls our lives, the concept of blood memory cuts through the pronouncements of, quote, Indian experts, insisting that we are Indigenous because our bodies link us to our Indigenous past, end quote. This is powerfully understood when Lawrence shares parts of an interview of a participant speaking about a time when they were chopping meat. Quote, suddenly my body felt like this was something that we've been doing for years and years and years. There was this flash where I thought I was somebody from 200 years ago. And you know, I knew that this person was here. End quote. This embodied knowing speaks to our connections with the land and our understanding that the land is our greatest teacher and supporter of life. 
Lawrence goes on to say, quote, in a country where authenticity is always demanded of indigenous subjects, we do not have to justify our mixed bloodedness of or lack of Indian status or to wait for courts and legislation to decide who is Indian, who is entitled or entitled or unentitled and to internalize that logic. Our bodies tell us who we are, end quote. Lawrence illuminates that there is a powerful story here of indigenous survival and continuance and correlates that these experiential embodied connections might just be the internationhood bond that bands indigenous communities together. This investigation into state control over who I am and who my people are at points made my heart and spirit ache. Indigenous liberation can be an overwhelming movement to think about, especially when it's done in an imperial paradigm. The list of crimes Canada has committed against the humanity of Indigenous peoples is terrible. Quote, kill the Indian has been Canada's most uniting and enduring legislative agendas, and I, an Indigenous woman, have been enemy number one. I believe that my biggest responsibility is a displaced indigenous person is to explore the ascendant nature of my placement. So how do I take on a state who relentlessly attacks my identity? I stop thinking like them. I unshackle myself from the chains of colonialism. I dive deep into my blood and remember that my body tells me who I am. I refuse to be managed, convenient, categorical. I shift. I use my stories to shift the paradigm from a white imperial patriarchal one to an indigenous worldview that roots us into an environment that honors, respects, and centers indigenous peoples. For I know that this indigenous environment, engaging the world from this place, works, champions, stewards, and sustains a peaceful existence for all organisms. It, for thousands of years, has been our evolutionary way of life. Now, I can't decolonize the world or my nations. All I can do is focus on the continued cultural evolution and ignition of matriarchal power that has been gifted to me by my ancestors. It becomes my role and responsibility to take care of myself and share any knowledge I unlock from my blood memory with my community to continue the knowledge sharing practice that has, been indigenous, that has brought indigenous peoples to this moment. Lawrence compassionately communicates the deep and righteous struggles Indigenous peoples have faced against resisting colonization and white nationalism. The tactics of genocide against us have been immense. Residential schools, the chemical warfare of using alcohol against Indigenous peoples, the biological warfare of smallpox obliterating many communities, which have all been recently authenticated in the 2019 Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women summary stating, quote, this violence amounts to a race-based genocide of Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, Inui, and Métis, which especially targets women and 2S LGBTQQIA people. This genocide has been empowered by colonial structures, evidenced notably by the Indian Act, the 60s Scoop, residential schools, and breaches of human and Inui, Métis, and First Nations rights, leading directly to the current increased rates of violence, death, and suicide in Indigenous populations, end quote. 
So even if agents of the state refuse to deal with this truth and try to bulldoze into reconciliation, which is more white supremacist behaviorisms, I can center my health and well-being to bear witness to the clearly indestructible power that is indigenous existence, identity, and cultural continuance. Lawrence speaks to the confrontations we can receive on these transformation, transforma- transformative journeys from non-Indigenous peoples, quote, who disparage the modernity of contemporary Native existence. Now, non-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples can hold and sustain a primordial notion of identities, and some Indigenous peoples have adopted an anti-evolutionist position, and I believe this stasis mindset needs to be expunged for our peoples to live peacefully. For if we don't all engage in a level of modernity, we make ourselves vulnerable to the unknowing participation of colonial primordialism. From that, it is my obligation and service to build creative environments wherever I am that build Indigenous people's certainty that we are the authorities on who we are, what our culture is, and how we evolve it. I will not let the state-sanctioned warfare tactics of dividing Indigenous peoples perpetuate my relations and or my identity. Knowing I will fail at this often, I will be generous with myself in the fight. I will refuse the need to be recognized by the federal government slash Canadian state, which is why I have not renewed my status card since 2008. I will reinvest my efforts into building Indigenous nations that are founded in beliefs of Indigenous power and identity to embody this Indigenous-centered futurism that I believe supports the Indigenous emancipation from colonial imperialism. Real Indians and Others by Bonita Lawrence was a privilege to read and a powerful example of the strength and resilience of Indigenous matriarchy. It reminds me of our infinite ability and responsibilities to contribute to our cultural evolution so we strengthen our understandings and authorities of Indigenous identity and self-determining Indigenous nationhood. Okay, kiwa, Let's talk about this. Okay, so I personally think Bonita Lawrence's Real Indians and Others uh, should be required readings for um, any Indigenous person, uh, any uh, Canadian, uh, because it's such a specific and in-depth and really digestible um, analysis and illumination of state tactics of division from indigenous peoples to being the authorities of our identities. Um, We were only given 1500 words for this book report. I went over, don't tell my professor that, Um, because um, there was so much information that um, Lawrence gives us, including the the specific chapters that she goes into around um, the state desired control, uh, desire to control indigenous uh, women, um, which is still something that indigenous women, as per the missing and murdered indigenous women's uh, final report this year, states uh, that Canada has been found guilty of uh, genocide um, against us. Um, so go pick up a copy and go read it. And I actually think the chapters are only like anywhere from 
I think it's like 12 to maybe 16 or 17 uh, per chapter. So it's really doable. I would say like if you did the TRC's final report and did it like chunk by chunk, I would say that this book is really worth your time to go and pick up and read chapter by chapter. Specifically as a displaced indigenous female, I found it very powerful to be able to get into the specifics of the genesis of... um, um, uh, the state's desire to eradicate me and other indigenous women and indigenous peoples. I decided to focus um, my kind of uh, report or review on it. Also, uh, nobody tells you this about your master's program, but here's the thing. The assignments. <laughs> like, I don't know what I was thinking the assignments would be, like these very different or master's unique lock and key held systems of analysis and frameworks they we just doing book reports you know like the same framework that we did in like grade one and two when we were reading like the bernstein bears and you know that turtle one and and what else did we read what else what was i reading at that age oh that book called go to bed ned which was about manners uh, anyways basically just taking that very simple framework of a book report a book review reading it and then giving uh, our own analysis of it which is very much like what i do on my blog and so if you're thinking about you're doing your master's or thinking about going into grad studies um particularly i feel like in creative writing or around indigenous methodologies and, and pedagogies do not think that there is some like wildly different way of working that you as a practitioner and person who's held a job for many years uh, cannot do. You can. Um, okay, sidebar over. I decided to focus my perspective on the correlation between the state controlling indigenous identity and that putting us into sort of like... Um, what i said where did i put it uh like a historicized version of ourselves you know this kind of inflexible state of the primordial uh version of who we think indigenous peoples are and i think that actually we're moving out of that and 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 and, um trying to work not against or in friction to traditionalists but uh, there's another really great chapter that um, Bonita talks about the fact that there is a role urban uh, traditionalists um, play in terms of uh, creating allyship with BIPOC communities, as well as understanding uh, urban settlerism that uh, rural indigenous traditionalism uh, can be informed by. And I think uh, instead of going from a colonial us versus them, you know, in that kind of um, uh you know, binary um, position of uh, one or the other, uh, we can acknowledge that there, because the history of colonization displaced and dispossessed large portions of indigenous people via either eradicating or the removal of our land on when colonization first occurred or the echoed impact of state legislation uh, and the politicized administration of keeping and continuing to move um, indigenous peoples off our traditional territories we have to meet each other in what this present moment is and I think there's something to leverage and to be innovative around and that 
really excites me. And I, I really appreciate it when she was talking about the fact that there is something to remember here, again, as you're getting to know me, that refuses a engulfing traumatic narrative of the woe is me indigenous person, but that actually through trauma, which can be capacity building and strength building, is this narrative that there is a bond uh, that connects us around um uh, who we are and this you know powerful story of indigenous survival and continuance uh, that might just be that internationhood bond that really excites me you know I have uh, I have connections with my territory I've never lived full-time on either of my reservations um, spent summers up there um, we have a family homestead on one and I'm looking to uh, build a, a small little structure there so I have one on my reserve but it's different. They are very different experiences in relationship to culture and relationship to family. And I was debating whether or not to get into my own personal experience of my uh, this, the way that I've been impacted by state displacement and their legislative attack on my identity and ability to connect with my territory. And I'm just not mentally and spiritually in a place to offer that publicly. You know, I'm still building my courage with this podcast and trying to protect my spirit and family in ways that um, because I've chosen quote a public life that protects my family who really haven't and and I'm just right now not in a space where I feel you know courageous or vulnerable enough or safe enough to be quite honest because this book really was opening um, things in a way um, that make me feel quite vulnerable you know I think for many indigenous women we feel attacked we feel like our matriarchal tendencies are being primordialized and or eradicated um in a way that society doesn't acknowledge and it's really really hard and uh i just didn't want to talk to um share that with the the community or in my paper at this point maybe i will later on um i actually probably share a little bit more of it when i do my community of practices or if we're kind of in relationship in person so i don't know if you want to bring me to your class which i love coming into classes or if you want to host a talking circle which i'm also really um love doing i like being in relational physical space with people because i think it allows us to see one another in a way you know i talked about in the paper of bearing witness to one another in these transformations that can actually make people f- feel quite isolated uh, and in my previous podcast i did talk about the isolation that we feel um, or can feel but in particular um i think it's really important to remember for us as indigenous peoples that this has been a state tactic this divide and conquer this authority over um surveilling and um being the authoritarians on who we are um to divide us, to make these divisions happen on nation, community, family, and self levels and stages um, was deliberate. And so I firmly believe that if we can begin a healing of knowing who we are and feeling like we can be confident and powerful in recognizing who we are in this present moment and not uh, succumbing to the Canadian shame-based culture of, quote, not feeling indigenous enough or not feeling we have the power to self-determine, um, we're in a really exciting place. I'm, I'm actually invigorated by it because I think uh, through the 
the state's division of us, they've actually put us in many different uh, environments and scopes to see where settlerism and imperialists are. So when we participate in the revolution, and I firmly believe that it's a revolution and not a renaissance because that's from a colonial imperialistic paradigm, it's a revolution that we're participating in and creating for the revolution, we have... Uh, indigenous peoples in so many parts of our environment and the ecology and that have infiltrated parts of the state that y'all imperialists don't even fucking know about and i'm really excited by that you know and 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 identity and understanding who we are is something that i'm very much interested in because i believe that's where the healing starts and you know kamloopa is an identity play the central question being who 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 are those young women um what does it mean to be an urban indigenous displaced person and uh you know i'm just working on the final stages of kamloopa to be published and i'm so excited for you to read that because i think what i wanted kamloopa to be was an offer for people to have these very important conversations around self to be able to determine who you are to participate in the cultural evolution to then uh, emancipate ourselves from uh, colonial persecution and uh, settler imperialistic oppression um and i think i'm gonna leave it there because i want to leave some space to talk about um some stuff that i've been going over on social media so if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any ideas, uh, let me know. This book, uh, Bonita Lawrence's Real Indians and Others, Mixed Blood, Urban Native Peoples and Indigenous Nationhood. Purchase yourself a copy. Go and educate yourself. Read a chapter a day or every week. You won't be disappointed in the information that you get around the state legislative tactics to eradicate Indigenous peoples. There you go. So uh, I wanted to share a couple of things that were popping up on my social medias to share with you because for me, this podcast is an extension of my kind of general indigenous methodology and way of working that I believe that I should be sharing with the community, um, the privileges that I've been afforded in terms of working in theater, uh, having access to incredible writers and uh, teachers and mentors. And I wrote on October 19th. Whenever I think I'm stuck in a story, I physically work through it. This embodied approach is an encircling that encompasses a deep communication, honoring the interrelational bonds uh, with mind and body. Actors, athletes, and dancers do this more readily than writers. They get up and move through it. If I'm creating in a non-hierarchical indigenous way, I believe a mental block is the mind humbly communicating that the body needs centering. Listening to different parts of us is also something I use when I direct. I'll get up on my feet and with great respect to the designers and actors, get on the set and into the world and move through it from there. When we're mentally blocked whilst creating a story, I often find by physically moving through it, we find our ways, it's a balancing. And I share that because I've been asked, uh, I've been getting asked more often either through direct messages or emails or opportunities to facilitate, um, you know, uh, non-colonial indigenous centered creative 
uh, creative methods and, and, and practical ways of offering to a non-imperial-centered um, uh, storytelling mode what we can do. And so uh, something that I've, um, I guess I hear from uh, some people is like, I'm, I have writer's block. Uh, or I'm not sure how to get past this one area. And so I wrote this because uh, what I'm finding with break is that it's actually quite physical. And I've talked to the producers around this that I I firmly believe it's in three parts. There is the kind of narrative story, there is music, and then there is the the physical language and there's a a physical vernacular to this uh, story. She's really presencing herself uh, as an embodiment of those three um, elements and modes of storytelling. And so this year in particular, I've been stretching more. I've been uh, really focusing on um, cognitively connecting with my kinetic communication what that means is like what is my body saying you know in moments where writing can be so stationary what happens when i get up and move or move through something and and this is not an an, you know this is not a new method but i i will say that i feel like writers tend to or can to in a more colonial creative methodology uh can become quite um static in terms of how they believe they can create and so i've been really exploring um, where are things being held in my body? Um, when I'm stuck, what feels stuck at a part of me? You know, what parts of my bodies feel um, that they're holding something? And maybe within that um, tension, there is answers to the 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 challenges I'm facing within the story and so I'll get up I'll do some sort of movement um, I'll stretch I'll go for a run um, I'll go out in nature and I'll touch trees and I'll touch the grass and I'll stop and let instead of me trying to quote think through it I'll try and feel my way through it and I find that to be incredibly useful like there is something to getting your body moving and moving through a challenge um you know, and, and most oftentimes, especially when it comes to me on first drafts or first passes at, you know, blogs or essays or reviews or reports or plays or scenes, excuse me, or monologues, uh, the first pass kind of in these transitions, which are so amazingly challenging, uh, sometimes there just becomes these little placeholders or moments um, and, and that I'll, I'll, I'll put that physical movement in there. You can even write where you feel there's a tension stoppage there. Um, but you know, it's time to listen to the silence. It's time to listen to the body. It's time to maybe humbly say, thank you so much cognition for giving me so much, but, um, I'm finding more and more the balance that we need to create in our creative practice for me, uh, allows, um, flow and vibe to happen. And, you know, I'll quote, um, I don't, I don't even know if I want to knock on this forward cause I don't really feel. Anyway, I've never had a, quote, writer's block. Uh, And I've been writing and creating, you know, I wrote my first play when I was, well, yeah, I think it was 14 when I wrote my first one. And I've never had a, um, you know, and uh, 14, 20, that's over 20 years. I've I've never had a a time where I was like, I just got nothing to write about. You know, what was I listening to a podcast the other day? And it was saying, you know, if you understand um, the why You'll never have a problem with um, how. My why around um, engaging and ensuring Indigenous peoples have um, 
equitable rights within uh, a soci- our society uh, propels me often that I, I feel like I'm just going to uh, not have enough time to write everything that I want to write down. And, and that's also fine. That also is probably a colonial mindset of feeling that uh, quantity is better than quality. Um, but there are some incredibly... Um, uh, 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 prolific uh, writers out there who can and have an incredible churn that I'm just in awe of. Um, and again, I'm not a big comparative analysis fan, but um, longer story shorter, move through it, move through it. And also like the reason that I say I do this as a director and I'd be respectful is because like <laughs> how many shows have we done where a director decides they're gonna get up and I don't, you know, line reading suck. And I, I messed up and did a couple of those on Kamloopa when I was directing. And I cringe at myself thinking about it. Or I've gone in and tried to, you know, I go in and try to, fe- what it is I try and do is I try and empathize with what the performer is going through to see what their physical blockages might be in terms of what we've given them. You know, the given circumstances of a set, a costume, uh, the values, the indigenous relational tensions. I feel like by putting my body there, I'll be able to clearly assist and help serve that performer moving through that area or even myself to say, what is the different vantage? point here um uh, i remember uh, i was dating a blackfoot uh once and he was working on the revenant and he was saying um um uh in ritu and emmanuel the the director and the cinematographer team for the revenant and birdman and um uh, Chivo also, he went, he was the cinematographer that the first indigenous cinematographer, I think any cinematographer to win three cinematography Oscars in a row. Anyways, that team would do this thing on the set of the Revenant where they would ding a bell every randomly, like two to three times a day. And in that moment, uh, Enritu would ask the entire set to, uh, go to the exact opposite position of where they were in their decision-making or their artistic point of view to explore and interrogate that what they were thinking could possibly be the exact uh, least effective position they were in. And so I try and do that often, that not just I go to the opposite, I actually put myself in around the circle and say, what are all the perspectives that are going on here? And that's why I really find it hard to uh, extract my directing and writing from one another, which is why I go from, you know, a fire creator because they're intrinsically connected because i'm not gonna know what this thing is like until i get it on its uh, feet or in movement um in flow and so uh uh you know i've watched daryl cloran direct a bunch and oh my gosh he never sits down is wild i'm like yo uh, take a load off bro this plays a long thing he just doesn't sit down and i just kind of love it i sit down sometimes but when I, the majority of the time I am up and when I am up, I definitely don't say, stay down center and I don't even actually stay in the 180 of where the quote audience is because I'm not just directing for the audience. I'm also trying to figure out 
as a writer, how does the world look from the inside? So I'm backstage, uh, like in view. I'm not just backstage kicking it with the technicians, uh, even though technicians are usually the dopest people or some of the dopest people in a theater. Um, but I'm on stage or I'm on the couch or I'm sitting at a table. Like I really get into this set and get through the perspectives uh, to see what's going on in this. Like what's the thick of it? Where where are there spaces of energy that's being held with on the stage? And so if you feel that you are challenged in a part of your creative process, I offer get up, move through it and kinetically listen to what your beautiful spirit and body is telling you. Okay, so the second thing on social media was uh, I posted, um, I don't know if I could love Taika Waititi more. His irreverence, courage, and knack for comedy is everything I want to be as an indigenous storyteller. I cannot wait to see Jojo Rabbit. I was trying to think of someone I could play in a story that would be like playing Hitler, and I think it might be Custard or Prime Minister Borden, something to that effect. Waititi is masterful in not letting the narrative get consumed by the pain, and I entirely agree with that approach. It is my role and responsibility as a storyteller to illuminate the revolutionary possibilities of channeling pain into power. I find comedy and humor to be the only sustainable conduits into that vulnerable space where spiritual transformation occurs. I work in humble service to the health and cultural evolution of my peoples. Joy is the task. Hashtag indigenous storytelling. And I think this fits in with, um, you know, uh, the curator in my mind is like, how do we connect to these three segments so far? And for me, it is about the reclamation um, and resurgence and continuance and evolution of how we decide our stories, ourselves and peoples and culture are presented slash shared with non-Indigenous community members. And for me, uh, Taika Waititi is to me, I would say uh, there's nobody close to him globally like for me and i and i look for indigenous storytellers like i don't find and i've been following taika you know since i was dating a, a, a aotearoa citizen you know six years ago i'm giving i, <laughs> I feel like i'm giving a lot of my <laughs> i was dating this person i've dated this person uh <laughs> stop doing that on here anyways um when that person uh brendy i've talked about him on my blog brendan introduced me to taika um like immediately and i was i was watching his uh i think it's two cars one night um which is the story of two maori maori children um waiting outside uh an establishment for their parents and this gorgeous story uh two cars one night uh you can google it it's on youtube i believe it won the oscar for best short and i just could not get enough of this person so then i went on to watch boy uh what we do in the shadows hunt for the wilder people i haven't watched thor yet though don't tell him because i just don't want to watch another movie with a white dude in the lead and i know the lead like one of the leaders is this incredible like uh maori indigenous person but i just don't want to watch it so don't tell him but what i am I'm really excited to watch is Jojo Rabbit, uh, which is this wildly irreverent and brave tackling of 
you know, I'm trying not to do too much investigation on what it is that I can only deduce or have derived from watching some of his YouTubes and press around this, uh, which Jojo Rabbit won the Critics' Choice for the Toronto International Film Festival um, around... Um, him a Jewish Maori man playing Adolf Hitler and uh, what that means and I remember watching an interview for him years ago saying he's been trying to make this film for a very long time and somebody asked him um, you know I think it was a community member deeply concerned about again why the story why this narr- narrative why would you want to play that and I think uh, Waititi answered like something to the effect of like because wouldn't this just really fucking piss him off that a, a, a Maori person uh, is is playing him and presenting a story about uh, his horror. And Taika's a bold, bold um, claiming of, of Maori storytelling and evolving it. Uh, it just makes me so proud and so excited to be a storyteller and uh, continue my firm belief that uh, comedy and um, that vulnerability of opening ourselves up with humor is the conduit, the conduit for the most amount, uh, the most sustainable place uh, for people to ingest, hold, and sustain um, emancipatory stories of indigenous peoples. Jojo Rabbit, cannot wait to see it. it comes out this week. Uh, and I really need a good laugh. And I need some fucking bold storytelling. So that's it. And that is all for this week's edition of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. Um, my recommendations as we move through the week, buy Bonita's book. It really ignites a lot of power to understand uh, the legislative attacks upon us. Because for me, I like to case things out and get to the genesis and origins to understand how I can refuse, um, uh, reclaim and continue um, my culture as an Indigenous uh, woman. And, and be in service to the community. Um, check out Jojo Rabbit by Taika Waititi, which I think is being released to you in the movies, movie theaters, uh, in your community, um, hopefully. Um, and then also, the investigation of identity can be really challenging. And I just want to make sure that, um, take it in pieces, be really generous, and honor everything that you've done and worked for and courageously embodied to get to this point that you're at. I don't think that we do that enough um, in remembering that we have been under attack for centuries and we are still fucking here. And so, you know, whatever you think you're not doing well enough, uh, refuse that shame culture, refuse the colonial mindset to make us think that we're not enough or we need to be, quote, real Indians or any lateral violence from traditionalists saying what you're doing is not indigenous. Protect yourself, be generous with yourself and remember everything that we're doing contributes to our contribution to humanity's ethnosphere. So let's make our ancestors proud and send a lot of love to everybody out there in the good fight battling against imperialism. This is Kim Sanclip Harvey from my ancestors to yours. Much love.
Today's postscript is brought to you by the lowercase c Canadian election between Dumber and Dumber. And uh, <laughs> how did somebody say it on Twitter today? The undeniably uh, sexy, sexy uh, Jugbeat Singh. <laughs> He's really good looking, and so is his wife. I was looking at them in their uh, post-election speech, and was like, "Huh, dang." Anyways, I'm just—I don't. I'm not gonna. I, this podcast episode's already too long. On Twitter, <laughs> I wrote, "Separatist talks from A, B, and Q, B remind me of the lame-ass kids who threatened to quit games at recess when they started to lose." Oh, really, Spencer? You want to leave now that you're it? Because it looks like you were having a great fucking time rounding the portable a second ago. Also, these are the same fucking communities who are majorly racist against indigenous communities fighting for sovereignty, losing in a system you built and invested in when it works for you, and then threatening to leave when it's not is such a loser thing to do. It's a racist and white supremacist assertion to believe you can separate from, quote, Canada whilst on fucking indigenous nations. Seriously, Alberta, you want to mess with the Cree and the Blackfoot? Good fucking luck meeting them outside the portable when you tried to change the rules. And then I posted on Facebook, number one, the Crees will outpopulate you. (laughs) And two... The Blackfoot will kill you. Hashtag just saying. (laughs) That is the only thing I'm going to say and contribute to this fucking election.